what a great Sunday night crowd. Wow. Well, you know, I'm going to ask you to do it. Turn to the person next to you, smile, and say, you still are the best looking thing I've seen all day. Just tell them you're... <laughs> and I want you to get your Bible, and let's, uh, let's get into the Word, and let's look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, and then we're going to jump to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Uh, verse 6 through 8. I came across them again I thought you might enjoy. I was reading a newspaper in Florida while I was there speaking in a church, and it seemed that uh, 80-year-old Herman was driving his car, and his cell phone rang, and he picks it up, and it's his wife, and uh, she says, Herman? He says, yes, Marge. She said, be very careful, because I just heard that there is a car driving the wrong way on the freeway. He goes, no, Marge, there's thousands of them. I thought that was cute. (laughs) And do you know it's very easy to get turned around? It's very easy to take what your life and the things you're doing in your life and get so comfortable with it that suddenly you find yourself going the wrong direction. It seems like there's a turnaround. And doesn't it seem that uh, everything is turned topsy-turvy in America? Many of you have been friends for a long, long time. We are fellowshipping in the lobby, in the, in the cafe, and I look forward to more fellowship with you tonight uh, as we sit and break bread together. And so many of you, you know, just walked up and said, you know, Randy, it just seems like everything you were saying is right where we were living, and, and, and things that just seem topsy-turvy, and they've gone crazy. And do you know that same thing is happening uh, all over the country, really, and it's very easy to get turned around. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, So many things are difficult for us to understand, because when we talk about God the Father, we can relate to God the Father, because He's a Father, we all have fathers, we are fathers, and that's very relatable. Some of us, uh, when it comes to dealing with God the Son, we are sons, again, we have sons, and so it's very easy to relate to Jesus the Son, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, suddenly it gets a little different, because we start saying, well, Holy Spirit, that's, that's a complete different thing. And there's been so many different teachings that have, things have gotten convoluted. I want to shed some light biblically on the subject of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want you to get turned around, but I want you to get turned to the point where you're running to the cross. Amen? Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and then Acts 1 through 6. So be careful how you live. I love the way this begins. Again, I told you, my son Christian, soon to be 23, my son Morgan, soon to be 22, my son Quentin, 18, soon to be 19, and my daughter Ashton, uh, 15 going on 30. And I love the way this, because I'm constantly having these kind of conversations. And he writes, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. I love it. But like those who are wise, make the most of every opportunity in in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine. That doesn't mean you can be drunk with Jack Daniels. It doesn't mean you can be drunk with beer. Just don't be drunk with alcohol would be pretty much the scenario he's saying. Don't be drunk with wine. And then he goes on to explain why. Because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Acts 1, verse 6 through 8. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? I love it. They want to have a prophecy seminar. 
Everything was about prophecy and prophecy and prophecy. It just seems like people just get so excited about Bible prophecy. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, gang, I'm always interested in people's last words. The final statements that they make just prior to leaving this planet. History records the last words of famous men and powerful men as they were uh, on a quest to try and silence the power of Jesus and the moving of his Holy Spirit. One such man was Emperor Julian the Apostate in the third century. He was one of the last emperors of Rome. And he said, I hate Christianity. I'm going to eliminate Christianity. And historians quote him as saying, I'm sick of hearing the name of Jesus. I'm sick of the influence and the power his followers exercise in our midst. I'm going to organize an army and wipe them off the face of the earth. So Julian, the apostate, the last emperor of Rome, organized his army and he set out to destroy Christianity. However, one day on the battlefield, an arrow pierces his heart. He tumbles off his horse and as he's laying there in the mud and he's wallowing in his own blood, his generals run around to begin to try to help him and he gets angry and he cries, leave me alone, leave me alone. And they stand back to record his last words. The last words of the great emperor was, you have won, Galilean, you have won. Oh, I love it. Philosophers and scientists have vowed to erase Christ from the face of the earth. They have ridiculed his words, saying they were going to put an end to the Bible. One such philosopher was a French man by the name of Voltaire. Voltaire was lauded as one of the greatest philosophers in, to, known to man. And he said, I'm going to make the Bible look ridiculous. And 100 years after I die, there will be no more Bibles to read or to sell or buy. And if people still want to find a Bible, they will have to go to the dusty shelves of an old museum to find one. However, about six weeks after Voltaire dies, he becomes deathly sick and violent. Some thought he was out of his mind. And it took several people to hold him down on his bed so he didn't completely fall out of his bed. Several visitors were there at the end, and Voltaire was staring at a flickering candle at his bedside. He begins to cry out to those that were standing in the room. And they ran in with pen and parchment in hand, and they were going to record the great last words of the philosopher. And here's what they recorded. Voltaire started to cry out, I'm lost! I'm lost! I'm lost. He died, went off into a godless eternity. But let, let me tell you the rest of the story. There was a great radio host named Paul Harvey years ago, and I used to love to listen to him at night, and he used to say, let me tell you the rest of the story. 103 years after Voltaire died, remember he said, 100 years after I died, there'll not be a Bible to be found to read or to buy. And if you want to find one, you'll have to go to the dusty shelves of an old museum to find one. But 103 years after Voltaire dies, his home in France was purchased by the World Bible Society. <laughs> I love it. And out of that same room that he died and went to a godless eternity crying, I'm lost, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Bibles were shipped around the world. Oh, come on. You can clap your hand and thank God for that. God's got an awesome sense of humor. 
The Roman Empire is coming gone. Voltaire and the philosophers have come and gone. But the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is still alive and he is still well. Now, friends, those were the words of just mere men. However, the words that we read in Acts chapter 1 were some of the last words Jesus, the risen Son of God, he said just prior to his ascension to heaven, and he did not leave us alone. He said, I will leave you the olos paracletus, or another of the same kind, in the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mirror image of Jesus on planet earth. And please understand, the words in Acts 1, they really take on a greater weight and significance when you realize that Jesus spoke those words after he has risen from the dead. In other words, he's already conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's speaking as the reigning, conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's speaking as the ultimate authority, the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000, the alpha and the omega, or really the beginning and the end. And he is speaking as conquering king, and he's giving us a mandate, or what is popularly called the Great Commission in Acts 1 and 8. In Matthew 28, 18, the gospel account gives these additional details of our Lord's last words prior to being taken out of our sight and leaving the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember, this is after the resurrection. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Inquiring minds want to know how can he be with us if he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is here on his behalf. And he's the mirror image. He's with you all the time. The question then arises, well, how would this kingdom be established? Well, they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Inquiring minds want to know, okay, pastor, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you ever want to know when somebody says, have you heard the gospel, what they're really saying is, have you heard the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And do you know that I firmly believe that most of America has not heard the true gospel yet? Even with all the preaching and all the teaching and all the things on television, the vast majority have not heard the true gospel. They've heard a story that says, get Jesus and just enjoy life, but they haven't heard repentance and they haven't heard that they have to live a holy life and a godly life. For the vast majority of us, people just say, okay, well, I'll take that, but I don't want to change my lifestyle. Well, friend, that's exactly what we were dealing with this morning. And if you weren't here this morning, I recommend that you pick up that message on CD. So the question that arises, how do they establish their kingdom? Well, they were to go out and preach the gospel. And how, from a human standpoint, were they going to pull this off? Because the apostles were in no way ready for such a task. The fact is, they were still much they did not even understand. Their faith was very weak. How many have ever gone through a time in your life where your faith was very weak? I have. I could attest to it, I'm human. And up to this point in their life of the early church, they had failed in their public witness and also in their private witness. Even Simon Peter, their acknowledged leader, had openly denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. And the thought must have been going through their minds, if Simon Peter, Petros, meaning the rock, if he could be intimidated or demoralized by the words of a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest's home. What in the world are we, who aren't even close to being a Simon Peter, going to do? 
There's no possible way that we can do this. Jesus answered them, and he said they would do it with a power they'd never known before. A power beyond anything they had ever experienced. A power beyond human capabilities. A power to change the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what reason? To be my witnesses, to tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice, friend, it's power to be a witness. It's power to share your faith. It's power to do what God has called you to do. Now, here's the fact that you need to realize. That very same power that was poured out on the day of Pentecost is available to each and every one of us right now. Right now. On that day, Peter said it loud. Old Simon stood up and he said, this promise is to you and to your children and even the Gentiles, that's you and I, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Now, friends, pay very close attention. As we consider these things and we consider the Holy Spirit power, we need to be very careful about avoiding unbiblical extremes. I'm going to say that again. We need to be very careful about avoiding unbiblical extremes. One extreme is to go beyond Scripture or to even contradict Scripture. And sadly, much of what is being done in the name of the Holy Spirit has little or nothing to do with Him at all. Far too often on Christian television, when we see aberrant, bizarre, or even freaky behavior, it's all attributed to the Holy Spirit, and they play the God card, you know, and they say, well, God is doing this, and you know what I mean, because you'll watch it like I do. People seem to be okay, and everything seems to be going well, and then all of a sudden they say, the Holy Spirit, oh, he's on, yay, and they start jumping around, and you go, what in the world just happened to you? Did you lose your mind? You know, I was speaking in a conference. And I was sitting on the platform back when uh, we all used to sit on the platform before we got delivered and sat on the front row. And, and I was watching this thing, you know, and there were people running around the building barking like dogs. And they were screaming and hollering and waving banners and rolling on the floor and making animal noises. And I remember watching that and saying, Holy Spirit, is that you? Is that really you? Because if it's you, I want it. Don't understand it, but I want it because if it's you, I I want you. But if it's not you, Lord, I want nothing to do with it. And I watched it, and I watched a very well-known preacher who was speaking before me, and I was supposed to speak that next Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon. And while he was walking around, he was in the midst of one of the, they call the greatest revivals in in our movement, and he was, people were pushing people, and I'm I'm watching this, and uh, I said, wait a second, Lord, you know. And the Holy Spirit said this to me, Randy, did what you see humble you? Did it cause you to long for more of me? Did it cause you to long for my soon return? Did it make you want to lay in my presence? Proskania, where we get an English word, prostrate before the Lord. Did it make you want to hunger for more? Did it cause you to realize you're a sinner? You need to be saved by grace. I said, no, Lord, I'm pretty confused. Then I'm not here. Because that's my job. The Holy Spirit's job is to draw us to Jesus. And he does, and he's a gentleman. And I don't know about you, but that kind of stuff does not interest me one bit. I think I will take a pass, if you don't mind, not on the Holy Spirit, but on the misrepresentations of the Holy Spirit. 
And many Christians and non-Christians alike recoil from such excesses. And and I represent a a culture and a generation that has literally thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They've thrown the Holy Spirit out the door because of all the excesses. And they see all these abuses and they say, well, forget it then. I don't want it. I don't need it. And friend, that couldn't be more wrong than saying I'm going the other way. The other danger, which is every bit as serious, is to not seek something that Scripture clearly offers. It is foolish to consider a biblical experience and say, well, because I don't have it or because someone has abused the gift, then it must not be real. And again, I've gone to conferences and heard very, very well-known preachers stand up and say that exact same thing. And I sit there and say, no, you're misrepresenting a generation. And I've got colleagues who will, who will literally go the other way, and, and they'll say, we can't even have anything about the Holy Spirit. And I'll say, wait a second, gang, you're misrepresenting an entire generation. They're longing. This is the age of the supernatural. They need to hear the truth of who the Holy Spirit really is and how he's to function in their life on a daily basis. And it's foolish to consider a biblical experience and say, well, because I don't have it or because someone's abused it, then it must not be real. The truth is, The Bible has promised a dimension of power for every believer who wants to be a witness for the Lord. And I believe that many in the modern day church no longer understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, I shared this morning that the word baptized in the Holy Spirit is a colloquial phrase. We don't say it very much anymore. Uh, People don't understand it. And you can look throughout the Bible and say, well, where does it say baptized in the Holy Spirit? And you won't find it. It's attributed to John the Baptist. He said, there is one coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you not with water, but with Holy Spirit and fire. So we say, well, that must be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. Now, we think of that as often an emotional experience. In fact, several of you met me in the lobby today and you had questions on that emotional experience. And at times it can be emotional. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you, you may get emotional. We are emotional beings. Listen, there's emotion in my marriage. If there wasn't emotion in my marriage, it'd be pretty dull. And there are times that there's emotion in my marriage. There are times when my wife and I have to look at each other and say, listen, I love you, but I don't like you right now. And that vents a little emotion. Have you ever been there? You're looking right at him right now. I hope you like him now. I saw that, yeah. And that vents a little emotion. And your, your relationship matures. Listen, when we were just married a year, two years, she loved the flowers. Oh, if I went and got flowers for her birthday and for Valentine's Day, I was in like Flint, you know? But now, after almost 25 years, she says, look, save the money, clean the house. <laughs> and all the ladies said amen to that. Save the money, clean the house. Change the sheets. Do something productive. And do you know that there are times as you, as you mature in the Lord and you do those things that you know what? As a child, I spoke like a child, but now that I am mature, I put away childish things. And there are times that you will be emotional. But did you know that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and feel absolutely nothing at all? In fact, I want to release many of you from that heaviness or that really it's a bondage that you felt because you'll email me, you'll Facebook me, you'll call and you'll say, Pastor, wait a second, the Holy Spirit must not love me like he loves everybody else in our church. And I'll email back and say, why? 
Well, because I don't cry like everybody else, and, and I, don't, I don't have those emotions like everybody else, so he must not love me as much as he loves everybody else. And I'll email back and say, listen, that's nonsense. Your salvation and your giftings in the Holy Spirit have nothing to do with emotion and everything to do with obedience to the voice of God. How may I say amen to that? So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, if you take the word fill that is used there in Ephesians and you look at the Greek and you will find that it speaks of wind filling a sail. In fact, if I had a chance, I would have had the staff build me a big sailboat right here. A big sailboat with big sails. Because Ephesians chapter 5, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it literally means, or one translation means, uh, wind filling a sail. Have you ever been on a sailboat and found yourself with no wind? You're just kind of sitting there. It's a lot of work to row back to shore. And then suddenly this gust of wind comes along and you quickly lift your sails. And it's like those old movies. I love those old pirate movies. Treasure Island's one of my favorites. I made a hoist the sails. The wind is blowing. And suddenly there's activity and everybody's running and they're hoisting the sails and the ship takes off. Boy, that's pretty much a perfect example of what the Christian life is when you try to row a sailboat on your own. It's a lot of work. And what it's like as a Christian when you try to do what God has called us to do in our own strength. It's like trying to row a large sailboat and we grit our teeth and we dig in and say, I've got to obey the Lord and I've got to keep my thoughts pure and I've got to love my spouse and I've got to love those nappy-headed kids. Oh, Lord, i got, you know, and I just got to love them and, lo- and love my neighbor and that neighbor next door who put his car on my driveway. Can't stand that guy, but I've got to love him, Lord. And, got, and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing and pretty soon you go, this is horrible. And you look and you got blister upon blister upon blister. Have I started teaching where we're living yet? And suddenly you say, this is horrible. And you call the pastoral staff and you go, I give up. If this is Christianity, you could have it, pal. And do you know that a lot of young Christians, they never make it past that point. It's hard going. But then you come to your senses and you come to the altars of grace, and that's why I am a hero of the altars. I believe in it with all my heart. That we have to have the opportunity for people to say, you know what, Lord, I can't row this boat on my own anymore. I ask your Holy Spirit to fill my sail and help me accomplish what I can't accomplish in my own strength. And in 25 years of ministry, soon to be 26, I have seen lives transformed in five to 10 minutes who simply just walk to an altar and lift their hands and say, Lord, I can't do it anymore on my own. I don't have to counsel and pour 45 gallons of oil over their head and knock them down and get them up and knock them down and get them up and send them off to Hebrew school. And Lord, I just... I can't do it on my own. And suddenly, the presence of the Lord begins to do what we cannot do. And what we used to feel like duty to us begins to feel more like delight. What has become difficult becomes easy in God's might and power. And the Holy Spirit wants to guide your life. He wants to direct you. He wants to lead you. He wants to fill your sails. He wants to give you direction. He wants to move inside of your hearts. Looking again at Ephesians chapter 5, a second translation of that word filled is the word permeate. And it's the idea of salt permeating meat. 
And back in the first century, without refrigeration, the way they preserved meat products was by rubbing salt deeply into the fiber of the meat. And in the same way, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit. It's telling us to allow the Holy Spirit to so permeate your life to get down into the fibers of your heart and your spirit. Allow him to massage his personality, his his point of view, his, his thought process, so deep into your fibers of your heart and your mind, allowing him to permeate what you say and what you think and what you do. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that I'm carried along by and under the control of Jesus Christ. I fill my mind and my heart with his word so that his thoughts become my thoughts. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to walk thought by thought, decision by decision, act by act under the Spirit's control. However, However, please understand that when you are filled with the Spirit, it does not mean you lose control of your faculties. Because at the same time, we are told over in the book of Corinthians that the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. That simply means when God the Holy Spirit is working through you, you still have control over what you say. You still have control over how you act. You still have control over your volume. You don't become an animatron. It's not like suddenly it's, you know, like Star Wars, use the false Luke. And you go into this, you know, no. It's not like suddenly you're a robot and some freaky thing takes over you. No. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. And you're not an automatron or a robot. You're not taken over by some freaky force. No, quite the contrary. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he only moves in our lives when we surrender in his leadership and his guidance and say, I can't do this anymore, Holy Spirit. He wants to fill you. Like wind fills the sails of a great ship moving it across the ocean. He wants to fill your marriage. He wants to fill your physical relationship with your husband and wife. He wants to fill the relationships you have with your children. He wants to permeate you like salt permeates meat and preserves it. He wants to influence you. What does that mean, Pastor Randy? It means giving wisdom in what you say and what you do in the everyday things of life. As you're walking to algebra and you're walking into that algebra class and you know everybody around you is so saturated in a world mindset set in a culture, and the Holy Spirit says, let me permeate your mind. Let me touch your heart. As you're walking onto that campus with that liberal professor who thinks there is no God, but the fool says in his heart there is no God, and the Holy Spirit says, let me permeate you. Let me speak through you. Let me illuminate your mind. Let me begin to flow in you so that they know you are not of this world. You're a peculiar person. Not weird, but peculiar. What does peculiar mean? It means when you see something, you go, wow, that's, that's different. That's, that's really cool. I want that. Because it's a practical power that God wants to flow in your life, through your life, and up on your life. Now, that's a very important distinction. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaks of something more than the Spirit coming to indwell you. He speaks of the empowerment you will receive when the Holy Spirit comes up on you up on you. Again, not to be repetitive, but that's a very, very important distinctive. Remember, the disciples in the upper room, Jesus leans over to them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he breathes upon them and they receive that same breath that was about to come in power in Acts the second chapter. However, when it was time for ministry, he then moved from within them and rested upon them. I've got to ask you, have you had that transference of the Holy Spirit? where he comes from within and rests upon. The word Dr. Luke uses here for power 
is a fascinating term. It comes from the Greek word dunamis, a variation of the word entered the English language when Alfred Nobel discovered something in the lab that would literally change his life forever. See, we know him for the Nobel Peace Prize. But did you know that the reason he created the Nobel Peace Prize was because hundreds or several years earlier, he created a dynamic power that they were now using for war. And he didn't know what to call it. So he called his Greek friends, his Greek philosopher friends, and, and he said, hey, what is the Greek word for amazing power? And his friend said, dunamis. He said, okay, that's what I'm going to call my new invention, dynamite, or explosive power. And his friend kind of chuckled. So in 1867, Nobel received U.S. patent number 78317 for his new invention he called dynamite. And that's where the word entered our vocabulary. In Acts 1 and 8, Jesus said, you will receive dunamis or dynamic power, the Greek term, or dynamic power, explosive power, not political power, not power to run around the building and act like a crazy maniac. Not, not, not power to jump around and scream around and make animal noises and have people say, well, not that that's, you're weird. No, it's power to preach the gospel. Power to pray. I don't know about you, but I need power to pray because I just get overwhelmed. I wish I had a night to teach you overcoming or overcome. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you. Instead of you being overcome by a culture, you overcome the culture. Power to lay hands on the sick. Power to preach recovery of sight to the blind. Power to change your world. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested or tempted of the devil. There is no, there is no tempting. that God doesn't lead us to be tempted. But the Holy Spirit was bringing him up to be tested because he would face Calvary. and He would face the devil at the cross. And the Bible tells us in Luke 4, after he comes out, he goes to the synagogue, and the first thing he does in his own hometown, you know the story, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, today the Spirit of the Lord is up on me, up on me. There's a change of position, and he's on me for what reason? To preach the recovery of sight to the blind. In other words, it's time for ministry. He's making a public notice. It's time for ministry. It's time to see people saved. It's time to see people delivered. It's time to see people healed. It's not time to run around the building and shake and quake and, and look like you're a maniac. It's for a reason. And then he says, today it has been fulfilled before your eyes. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of power that we need operating in Lee Summit. Power to change the world. Look at how the change of position from inside of you coming upon you impacted the church and the early believers. Early in your, my message, I spoke about Peter and how he was intimidated by a young girl at a fireside into denying Jesus, not just once, not twice, but three times. However, now in Acts, the second chapter, when there's a transference of the Holy Spirit from within him upon him, he gets up and he speaks and the power of God begins to flow, and 3,000 people are brought into the kingdom with one shot. That's power. I want that power, Lord. I want that power. By an upraised hand, does anybody else say, I want that power as well? 
You look at Saul of Tarsus, after he was converted on Damascus Road and he became a believer, the Lord had a man named Ananias to go to Saul and lay hands upon him because he was blind for three days. And the Bible says that the Lord is amazing. The Lord is an ultimate multitasker. Did you know that? Because while the Lord is listening to Saul pray, he's speaking over here and he's saying, I want you to go to that house, which tells me that God's the ultimate multitasker. In fact, the Lord tells Ananias, go over there and lay hands upon him because you're going to find him praying right now. It doesn't tell us what he's praying. I believe he's repenting. He's probably going over in his mind all the people he's drug into court, all the Christians that he's brought in and they've crucified or thrown in jail, and he's confessing and he's praying, and this man Ananias hears the Lord, and then he goes, Lord, are you sure? Saul of Tarsus, Lord? You know, he's a mobster. He's a murderer. The equivalent would be, hey, listen, uh, I want you to go over to John Gotti. He's sitting in jail right now, and, and I want you to go lay hands. Are you sure, Lord, John Gotti? Or let's even go a little further. Saddam Hussein is in a hole over there. Go over there. I, I've called him. Are you kidding me? Said, Lord, you better be sure. And Ananias goes and lays hands upon him, and the Bible says his eyes are open, and the Spirit of the Lord comes up on him, and the murderer becomes a prophet. Power, power, power. What about Stephen? He's the first martyr of the church. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. They have him on trial for his life, and he begins to preach under the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and they begin to stone him. And Stephen, as he's being stoned, he says this, I see Jesus, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Understand the importance and the significance of that, because prior to that statement, whenever they talked about Jesus, he was always sitting at the right hand of the Father. But now he's standing. Why? For the same reason, when my son's on that football field, I get up. And my wife's pulling me. She's saying, remember who you are. Don't make it. Just. And I'll go to Glendale High School and Springfield. I'm screaming, go, Quinn. Now, Quinn is six foot two. He was six one. And he weighs 220 pounds. And I know you're looking at me like, where in the world did that come from? <laughs> A lot of prayer. <laughs> but Morgan, my second son, is six four. And he's skinny as a rail. And so when Quinn runs out on the field, I got to tell you, something happens in this dad's heart. I see old number 74 put that helmet on, and I'm freezing, and I'm standing in the stands, and he goes out there, and they're right on the goal line, and they're getting ready to push over, and he walks out there, and as he's putting his helmet on, he looks up, and he turns, and he's looking right at me, and I go like this, and he goes like this, and everything in me is on that field with him. And, he go, and my wife's telling me, just remember, they know you're a preacher, just, you know. <laughs> They're all watching you. Don't, you know, and I go, stop it, stop it. And I'll yell, go! I'm yelling my head off. And he makes that push. And they go in, and he comes out, and he comes running off the field, and he's pointing at me. Listen, friend, that's why Jesus stood. Because when his son stood for him, Jesus stood in the grandstands of heaven, who as he set the Holy Spirit, he said, come on, son, you can push it across. We can make this thing happen in the name that is about to explode in this planet. God's alive, and he's cheering. And Stephen says, I see Jesus. And he's standing at the right hand. In the same way my son saw me, Jesus sees you when you make a stand for him. And that should make you want to shout. Because the Holy Spirit puts wind in your sails. The Spirit of the Lord came upon a whole group of believers in Acts 4 and 3 as they knelt together to pray, which we're about to do in this place in just a moment. The place where they were assembled was shaken. 
And we like to major on the manifestation and go, wow, that'd be awesome if that place was shaken when we pray. But why were they praying? They were praying for more boldness to reach their city. They weren't praying for a manifestation. They were praying for a reason. Holy Spirit sent revival to our city. Holy Spirit changed lives. Holy Spirit, we're longing for more of you. There's another dimension of this power that I'm running out of time and I've got to touch on because I would be amiss amiss not to. As the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, we read that believers spoke in tongues or languages that they'd never known before. And I believe it is the physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Listen very carefully. A diverse international audience was gathered in Jerusalem at this particular time, and to their amazement, each of them heard the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ being declared in his her own language. And I believe with all my heart that the gift of tongues is still available to believers today. And the purpose of the gift of tongues is to build you up spiritually. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 and 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. This is the devotional aspect of tongues, which is associated with praising God and giving him thanks. Verses 16 and 17 says, This aspect is sometimes called a prayer language. It is an element in praying in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 18, Jude 20. Because it is a means by which believers edify themselves spiritually, tongues may be called a means or act or work of grace. It is not an experience that occurs only at the time of being baptized in the Spirit. It ought to be a continual repeated experience. This is implied in Paul's statement to the Corinthians when he says, I wish all of you continue to speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14 and 5. But listen very carefully. In addition, some qualified exegetics understand Paul to mean praying in tongues, or at least to include it when he says that the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We do not know what we need to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groans that cannot be uttered, Romans 8 and 26. Now listen. Oh, I believe in the physical evidence. I also believe, though, that I represent a culture (laughs) who literally is inundated with guilt because they say, well, God must not love me because I don't speak in tongues, so therefore I must not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Oh, listen. In 25 years of ministry, I believe that is the physical sign, but I also believe there are non-physical signs of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Listen. When you got saved, and you were in your prayer closet, and you're praying. By an upraised hand, how many say, Randy, I noticed a distinct change in my boldness to preach the gospel, to share my faith with others. If that's you, raise your hand. Have you ever had prayer answered? Raise your hand, yes. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit speak to you, and you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt it was the Holy Spirit, and you were coming off that elevator at a hospital, and you had to go pray for someone with cancer, and you didn't know what you should pray as you ought, but suddenly the inspiration of the Holy Spirit came, and you felt something change from within you upon you, and you went and laid hands on someone inside there, and strength was brought to their body. Anybody else besides me? Yes. Those are non-physical signs of the infilling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need right now. 
He said, well, wait a second. I don't have that. I don't speak in tongues. That's the physical level. And it will come. It will come. I don't want you to seek tongues. I want you to seek Jesus. Don't seek the gift. Seek the giver of the gift. Case in point, do you remember when you called me several years ago? You said, where are you? And I said, I'm in Alabama. And you said, will you land because my brother-in-law is getting ready to go to heaven? And he wants to be baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues before he gets there? I went straight to the hospital. And here's a man that's loved God. He loved God with all his heart. And it was like walking into a sauna of the presence. Remember, Bill? Oh, my Lord. And Jim Tuber was laying in that bed. And I walked in. I said, hi, Jim. And he just kind of, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, he was dying of lung cancer. Is that correct? Colon cancer. And he had the tubes and stuff. And I leaned over and I said, Jim, I don't want you to seek tongues. I want you to seek Jesus. And friend, the presence of the Lord filled that room. I, could, I can close my eyes and still see him. Eunice was on one side. Bill was on the other. And, we, and he just lifted his hand. And, my Lord. Springs of living water. That's exactly how you can describe it. As he just... Now, you know, I don't know how doctrinally sound it is to say that he wanted to be baptized in the, so he knew how to talk when he got to heaven. But... <laughs> I don't think so either. But I do know that God is faithful. He is faithful. But our musicians come quickly. God is faithful. Friends, it's a power that has a purpose. Let me ask as we get ready to close Has your prayer life become dry and one dimensional? Do you feel like there is something lacking in your spiritual walk? Are you stricken with fear at the very thought or idea of sharing your faith? That God possibly might ask you to do something on the job, or he might possibly ask you to do something within your personality, beyond your, your natural abilities? If you answered yes to any of those questions, and you, my friend, are a candidate for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I have a simple answer for you. Because you look back and say, yes, yes, I, how do I get it, Randy? How do I get it? Are you ready? Here's a deep doctrinal truth. Let me explain to you how you get the Holy Spirit or the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? It's a very deep doctrinal truth. So I want you to take notes. You ask. You ask. That's it. And then you get rid of all your expectations on how it's supposed to happen. You simply ask. Luke eleven thirteen. so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You know, we went to lunch today, and as they begin to play softly, uh, and we were talking and just sharing, and the waiter just kept bringing that stuff and just filling it, you know, just filling it. That's why I like to order water, because I don't like soft drinks because of all the sugar and stuff, but because you just keep getting it and getting it and getting it, and they don't charge you for it. 
And when you're in the ministry and you got four kids who always have eight friends with them, you always go the you know, least expensive. I don't say cheap. I say least expensive way. And I order the water because you just keep getting it. And getting it and getting it and getting it. And they, and they don't charge you for it. I hate to go to the cash register at IHOP with my kids because I notice that IHOP charges, not the International House of Prayer, the International House of Pancakes. And I know some of you are real spiritual. Just track with me, amen. And, and they charge you for every single refill. And I'll never forget walking out of that place the other day in Springfield and, and putting that receipt in my pocket, kind of grumbling. And the Holy Spirit says, you know, I'll never charge you for a refill. I'll never charge you. And yet some of us, you know, we're, we're like, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, the people who developed your car, they put something, because they know human nature, they put something on their dash that I call the idiot light. You have an idiot light in your car? The idiot light is, tells you when you're out of gas. And it begins to flash. Some of the cars, they ding. And it's that little gas pump, you know, that light, it, it, it comes on. Have you ever met someone that when that light comes on, they take that as a challenge? <laughs> Amen? And it's like they say, you know, I could squeeze five more miles out of this thing. Or ten more miles, out, you know. And they're, they're running on vapors. And they're like, if I just go downhill, and I coast, and I just keep it at this, you know, I, I can, in fact, I was sitting at the gas station having this thought, you know, and, and I was kind of chuckling to myself, and I noticed this college kid, he was probably broke as, you know, as a church mice, and, and he's sitting there, and, and he pulls in, excuse me, and I'm sitting there, and as he pulls in, I, I, he, he, the car goes, and he goes, yes! Made it, baby! You know that poor kid was probably milking that thing all the way down Glenstone. And yet some of us, when it comes to our Christian walk and our relationship with God, the light is flashing in your life, and the idiot light is going on. And you're saying, well, if I'll just coast in my marriage a little more, if I, if I just do this or do that, and the Holy Spirit says, why? Why do you want to live on past infillings when I've got power for today? Why, why do you want to row your marriage? Why do you want to row this church? I get a kick out of my contemporaries who, they can't wait to hear the latest, hottest thing from Andy Stanley. They can't wait to hear the lot of, hottest thing from, you know, all these, all these guys. And I'll, I'll, I go and I listen to those conferences. Then I take what I've learned and I lay on my face and say, okay, Lord, apply it now. How does this fit me? Does this really work, Lord? Does it really work? Is this what you want us to do? Friends, <laughs> come back to Ephesians 5. Well, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the Greek in the imperative mode, which means it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's a command. And do you know that by definition, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is a gift? If we were on the basis of a person's merit, because I know that some of you are going to Facebook me and say, I'm not worthy of this gift. And I'm going to Facebook back and say, you're exactly right. Neither am I. 
And if it was based on a person's merit, the unanswerable question would be, what should be the extent of the person's worthiness, or how perfect must one be before qualifying for the experience? And do you know it's, it is possible for a sincere seeker to be so preoccupied with a sense of personal unworthiness that the Spirit cannot flow freely through that person? So here's what we're going to do. I want you to forget the person to the left and to the right of you. And I want you to stand. And I've known a lot of you for a long, long time. In fact, we were talking with, with Dave. Dave was, Dave, I asked, they asked Dave, Dave, when did you uh, start going to this church? He said, I was born here. Said, Man, you're old. When I first started coming here, I had two kids, and then we have three, and then four. So some of you, we've known each other a long, long time. It's almost like coming home to family. I got to tell you, I feel more comfortable here in this pulpit than any place else in the country. Any place else in the country. And what's about to happen is family time. You know those times in the Christmas morning when it's just family. And if you're on empty, this is your night. If you need the wind to build your sails, this is your night. If you allow him to permeate you, this is your night. And we're just going to come around the altar, and we're just going to ask, and I'm going to ask these very talented Levites to just lead us in worship. And yes, I call them Levites. Each one of us will have a tribe. That's for another service. And they're going to lead us in worship. And if you have watched my Facebook, you know that I said yesterday that I am very concerned with performance-driven worship. We have not seen performance-driven worship in this church. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty in Jesus is the Spirit. By an upraised hand, Hema say, Randy, I want a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm ready for it right now. Right now. Right now. Father, I pray with every hand lifted. Oh, if that's you, just prepare yourself right now. Holy Spirit, you are welcome.